Support for this show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account. So ambitious companies have the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Generally, we have defined racist policies and racist people based on the perpetrator and the intent as opposed to the victim and the outcome. Hello, welcome to Crunch on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Ibram X. Kendi, who is the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. He is the author of the new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He is the author of the previous book, um, which is a remarkable book that I read and had a big influence on me, called Stamped from the Beginning, which won the National Book Award. He was the youngest ever National Book Award winner, which is hell of a thing to be able to put on a bio. Um, Kendi is doing something, I think, interesting and important and also very challenging. He is trying to create a framework and a really a redefinition of racism, of anti-racism, of how we think about those ideas, what they mean, what they mean when they play out in our lives. This conversation and his project are similar to the Kate Mann conversation I had some months ago, whereas just as Kate Mann is trying to see misogyny as a social system women face, not something in the hearts of men, uh, Kendi is trying to understand racism as a social and institutional and policy system that people face, not something that is in the hearts of racists. And that means taking a word that has as much negative charge as really any in American life and applying it much more expansively, much more often to many more people, including himself, right? Understanding racist as something that we all kind of shift in and out of as we are advocating or believing in things that would lead to more racial difference, that would blame people more for racial difference versus closing it versus moving towards equality. And so this is challenging. Um, and we talk about what that means morally, what it means operationally, what it means pragmatically. We talk about how can you know when something is the result of difference versus when it is the result of policy, whether or not policy can bear that kind of weight. There is a lot in this conversation. Um, and so I will not waste more time before we get to it. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Ibram X. Kendi. Ibram X. Kendi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. This is a more personal book than I'd expected it would be. It's much more biographical. Yeah, and I, I, I didn't want to write a personal book. You know, as a scholar, I, of course, do not want to be the subject in any way, and I haven't really been trained to write in that way. But at the same time, as you know, talking about race, reflecting on one's own racism, reflecting on the racism in society is typically a deeply personal affair for people. And so I thought, in order for people to truly self-reflect um, and self-critique, I probably had to model that. Um, and that's why the I decided to use personal narrative. Let's start where you do in the book with the speech you gave. I think it's in high school. Mm-hmm. That now you say it was a racist speech, but but you were the one giving it. Yes. What, what was that speech? Well, um, and what were you saying? So, yeah, I was a senior in high school. And I competed in Prince William County, which is outside of Washington, D.C.'s Martin Luther King Oratorical Contest. I won my school, my high school competition. I was one of the top three finalists from the county 
and each of us spoke at the Hilton Chapel on MLK Day 2000. And in this speech, I pretty much restated many of the ideas about Black youth that had been circulating and to a large extent was in the mainstream and, and not only America, white America, but even Black America. And if there was ever a decade in which Black youth were deemed the fundamental problem of America, it was certainly the 1990s. And so in that speech, I, I said, uh, Black youth are the most feared in society as if it was their fault they were so feared. I, I condemn Black youth for climbing the high tree of pregnancy. I condemn Black youth for not valuing education. All these ideas suggesting there was something wrong with Black youth as a group and, and to suggest there's something wrong with, with a racial group is, is to suggest racist ideas. And you, you talk about those ideas being out in the mainstream. What do you think now is wrong with them? Right. There, there are people in his pocket say, yeah, like there, there was too much crime and black youth committed at least some of it. There was too much teen pregnancy. Like what was wrong with what you said then? Well, I, I think fundamentally in the 1990s, the question has always been, is there a problem with people? In other words, groups of people or is there a problem with the policies that are ensnaring people? In other words, Black youth from the 1950s to the 1990s, or I should say the 1980s, had a quadruple increase in unemployment rates. Mm -hmm. And we see across the world, uh, and including in the United States, that you have higher levels of unemployment, you're going to have higher levels of violent crime. And so instead of us thinking about ways as a nation to employ these kids, Instead, we condemn them and call them super predators as if they were the problem, that there was something wrong with black youth culture, uh, as opposed to, again, uh, the massive unemployment problem among their group and also the way in which they were being racially profiled by police. And so that's really what, you know, fundamentally, I'm, I'm trying to get Americans to recognize that, that when we have these racial inequities, there's only really two explanations, either policies are causing them or there's something wrong with people. So I think it is useful here to put this in context of your of the book that came before it, Stamped yeah. from the Beginning, which I read and had a huge influence on me. And it's a remarkable book. And the the big argument you're making in that book is that racist ideas emerge to justify racist outcomes, that they, that we have racial inequality in this country and that we come up with an ideological superstructure to explain like why it is a just outcome, yeah. as opposed to the outcomes being natural and then the ideas being used to simply describe them. Can you talk a bit about the genesis of that book and um, what convinced you that the causality ran the reverse way that, we, that it is normally put in the media or in the culture? Yeah, well, I think that I was... Initially, actually, I wanted to write a history of scientific racism, you know, up until the 1960s. And can you just but define that term? Scientific racism, more or less, I define it um, as the racism of intellectuals, of scientists, of academics. But I realized that obviously race, racist ideas have persisted and scientific racism was really one branch of a larger sort of project of racist ideas. And no one had ever written a comprehensive history of of racist ideas, and but more so to your question, really studying slavery, studying the enslavement era, uh, seeing how slaveholders obviously were saying things that they knew were wrong to justify their enslavement practices. Probably the most egregious example is 
for the better part of the, the, the 1830s until the Civil War, you had slaveholders who knew that slavery was sustained by brutal violence and terror, making the case that slavery was a positive good for Black people. And using every study that came about to prove it, even when academics themselves actually found that those studies were not sort of reinforcing them. I'm talking about, for instance, a, a study of the 1840 census in which a Harvard psychiatrist by the name of Edward Jarvis initially found in his data analysis that that Black people were 10 times more likely to be insane in the North than in the South. But then when he started looking closer at the data, he actually found that there were more Black residents, I'm sorry, more Black insane people than Black residents in certain Northern towns. So he knew, okay, something was wrong with this data. But when he put out that initial sort of data set and analysis in the New England Journal of Medicine, then you had these slaveholders who were like, you see, we've been telling you slavery is a positive good and, and slavery is driving these people insane. I mean, freedom is driving these people insane. But then when he corrected, Jarvis did, they didn't go back and say, oh, well, we were wrong. No, they continued to use his original, his original essay, which he stated was factually incorrect to justify that slavery was positive was a positive good. One of the things that that book was really compelling to me on is the way in which the justificatory ideology and ideas have changed throughout history to represent what the inequalities were. So in that slave owners era, the, the one I always think of for some reason is Thomas Jefferson, who is having children with one of his slaves, writing that um, African-Americans are not capable of thoughts above literal narration. Mm-hmm. And he's getting these letters from a young black mathematician who's saying, this seems wrong. Like, look at what I am writing to you. And he said, well, nobody would like to believe it's wrong more than I, but I I just see no evidence for it. And so like, that's an idea that can justify or arguably is used to justify slavery. But then as time goes on, you get, say, up into the 90s, more super predator ideas, ideas Mm -hmm. about um, uh, impulses towards violence, ideas about cultural degradation. Can you talk a bit about how the, the underlying ideas change in relationship to the underlying inequalities, like how that relationship moves over time as opposed to being static? Sure. So, you know, obviously, I think one of the good things about American history is that you've had anti-racist activists who have broken down or challenged or undermined um, racist structures and systems and policies, whether that's chattel slavery or even elements of Jim Crow. And so what happened when these racist systems sort of were essentially eradicated. New ones emerged in their place. Um, So obviously Jim Crow emerging out of the ashes of of slavery. And then they created new inequalities, which then needed to be justified by new racist ideas. And so I think it's really a product of both the success of anti-racist activists but also, of course, you, you you constantly sort of have to sort of shift and figure out new ways, for instance, as, as Republicans now are seeking to do to suppress votes. Because, you know, the political winds are constantly shifting. And so as you're shifting your racist policies, you have to constantly shift your racist ideas. And so, so it seems to me reading this book that the big idea of that book sort of is its underpinning, that mm-hmm. we do not see a world around us that is produced by racial difference. We see a world around us that is produced by racist policy with ideas about difference used to justify that policy. Yeah. I think one question somebody would have is, why can't it be both and? 
Like, why can't there be some differences in cultures or geographies that people come from or whatever it might be, and also that there is racist policy? What makes you certain that it is all one as opposed to some of one and some of the other? Well, I actually do think there's there's racialized difference. And so, obviously, geneticists have found that uh, there's a such thing as ethnic ancestry. And, of course, each ethnic group has been racialized. Of course, to a large extent, those ethnic groups practice different cultures, But at the same time, there's no biological difference, you know, via race. There's no behavioral difference. In other words, across cultures, people love, people lazy, people hate, people laugh. They just do it in different ways. But ultimately, I think more specifically to your your point, just because there's difference, cultural and even ethnic, doesn't mean it's better or worse or doesn't mean it's explaining away racial inequity, because fundamentally we never have received that evidence. Mm -hmm. So what people have typically done is used anecdotes or misleading statistics. To give an example, probably one of the more misleading statistics of the 20th century was this idea that the the cause of the growing percentage of Black children born into single-parent Black households was because young, single Black women were having more children And then some argued they were having more children to get more welfare. But actually, what we found statistically is the cause for that increasing percentage was because married two-parent households, or I should say married women, over the course of 20th century were having less children, right? And so, you know, we've had so many misleading statistics to sort of justify racial inequities, or we've had anecdotes that have general that have been used to sort of generalize negative behavior. I also think that's actually a particularly interesting example because then over the ensuing couple of decades, you've had uh, the out-of-wedlock birth rates among whites shoot up. And so there's this whole idea that was very dominant in the 90s about black culture, um, as opposed that it was somehow something outside of economic forces and yeah. But it just turned out to be a leading indicator, right? And that the same thing happened then to, I guess, quote unquote, white culture. And it was treated very differently, and I would say much more um, generously. And that's precisely the point. I mean, and and when we sort of start thinking from an anti-racist perspective, obviously we would treat those things dissimilarly, but we would fundamentally look for the root causes. Like we would not always seek to explain away supposed pathology by by characterizing it as the result of cultural or behavioral inferiorities of that particular racial group. And it's easier for us to do that as opposed to look for those policies that are oftentimes hidden, look for those policymakers who are oftentimes not taking credit, I should say, not taking accountability for instituting those policies that are leading to those those inequities. It's easy for us to just blame the people. So I want to go back to something you were talking about, because I think it's an important, it's a very subtle part of your book. You, when we were talking about difference a moment ago, mm-hmm. you said that you accept the idea that there can be difference at ethnicity, which then gets race um, categories pasted on top of it, that clearly there are some differences um, genetically between people of different ethnicities, but that on the other hand, you you reject the hierarchies that emerge from that, that, that those differences can't be about, they're not whether we laugh or love, they're not what makes us who we are. You talk about this in the book as, accepting water and rejecting its wetness. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk about both sort of what you're saying there? Like what what are the differences and how do they and don't they matter in this philosophy? Well, I think first and foremost, for the better part of modern era, humans have thought that the races were biologically distinct, that genetically 
Black people were distinct from white people, and therefore Black people had Black blood and white people had white blood, and, and there were Black diseases and white diseases. And these genetic distinctions then led to genetic predispositions to behavior, positive and negative. And fundamentally, geneticists have now found, of course, that at a genetic level, we're pretty much the same. But there is genetic variation, and actually the the vast majority of that genetic variation exists in Africa, which means that people in West Africa are actually more genetically similar to people in Western Europe than they are to people in East Africa. So this idea of this sort of genetic black person just doesn't exist. However, there is ethnic ancestry that are called populations by geneticists that are distinct. But can you give it an an example of like ethnicities versus races, just because this may not be as familiar to people? So to give an example, the Yoruba of Nigeria could be considered an ethnic group um, or the Irish of Ireland could be considered an ethnic group. Ashkenazi Jews. Precisely. Mm -hmm. Meaning that their genetic profile, the people who have that ancestry, their genetic profile is is, is similar, is the same, and thereby going to be somewhat distinct from people in other sort of regions that may be close by. But it's going to be more similar because in a way, you know, that you have sort of genetic ranges across the world. So in other words, if your group is close to another group's origin, you're probably going to have a similar genetic makeup. But what I, what I was trying to sort of get at is just because we have similar genetic makeups, what still has not been proven is that a particular sort of ethnic genetic profile has a predisposition to positive or negative behaviors. And that's what people have also sort of began to make a case about when even that evidence doesn't exist. And so what we can imagine is simultaneously biological sameness and ethnic difference while simultaneously saying that difference only means difference. It doesn't mean anything more than that. Similarly with culture and behavior. We can imagine behavioral sameness. And and what that means to me is you take any behavioral trait, and I mentioned a few earlier, laziness, happiness, love, hate, hard work. All of those behavioral traits exist in every culture on earth. They just exude themselves differently. And so that's how we can understand everyone loves. (laughs) Everyone's the same as a result of love, but people love differently based on different cultures. And we should not be judging how people love in another culture from the way we love in our own. One of the things that I think your book does a nice job of intervening in this debate in is that a very common structure of an argument is that, to be more precise about it, ethnic biological differences can exist. There is this difference between these two groups. It is probably biological. And the thing that your book's I think is very, uh, your your first book, but also your second here, is very interesting on, is that given how many different X's we have attached that for, given how many different things we have tried to explain away only to see that explanation fall apart, and 50 years later, we're explaining a wholly different cultural difference and trying to say, well, that one must be intrinsic, even though it's the opposite of the intrinsic difference we were dealing with before. I mean, the things, this is the common example, but the things we used to say about the Irish and the Germans Mm -hmm. and the laziness they were going to bring into the American bloodstream, the 1920s um, bills we had to make sure they didn't pollute the American um, uh, genetic mix. 
now looks ridiculous. And so the possibility of difference is too often, it seems to me, um, then merged with the things we, the differences we want to explain. Um, and like, it's easy then, because if it's innate, then we don't have to do anything about it. Exactly. But if it has something to do with the world we have constructed, and even if it is acting in relationship with the world we've constructed for all these arguments around epigenetics and other things, well, that's harder then. Then it's, then it's on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, it often is on us, but we don't like to face up to that. <laughs> no. And, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a new father and I have a three-year-old and, and I like to imagine that her behavioral characteristics that I sort of passed that to her genetically, right, as many parents do, even though we have no evidence for that. And we certainly don't have any evidence for that at a group level. In other words, if you're German, you, you're going to behave this way. Or if you're Nigerian, you're going to behave this way. Or if you're African-American, you're going to behave this way. And it's easy for us to state that, yes, Races behave this way, and that is the reason why they have more, because they are more or because they are less. It's, and, and that just, it, it, it simply explains the world. It explains the inequality. And like you said, we don't have to do anything. Although there is some, I, I'm a new father as well. There's some evidence that we pass on uh, our, there's like a lot of heritability. It's like hard oh, yeah. to understand what it is and what it is reflecting, because it also could reflect the you can't, it is hard except in some kind of adoption and twin studies to pull out like what is happening in my household versus what is me. But there is some evidence that we pass individually our genetic and then, and, and as such behavioral uh, inclinations onto kids to some degree. My son is a lot chiller than I am and than I was, <laughs> but, um, but it's there, right? Well, I mean, when I, when I say there's no evidence, meaning it's not concrete. Right. Right. And so there's theories there's some evidence to justify that that theories, but that's just a to me it's it's such a powerful statement, mm-hmm. um, and and I I feel like there are certain things that should not be said until we have absolute evidence that proves it. Because obviously, if 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 we are just sort of theorizing or talking about or preliminarily saying it, that's a very powerful idea. Because then we're going to say, oh, you know, all those smart people, <laughs> they're going to give birth to smart kids. And, you know, then it's going to lead to eugenics, right? And, and so I think it's a very dangerous slope to go down. Um, and it's certainly dangerous in a world of inequality. So this, I think, is a good bridge now to, to, to what the book is about, which is trying to create a framework for thinking about racism and anti-racism and trying to define terms in a more clear and usable way. So why don't we start with racism? How do you define racism? So I define racism as a powerful collection of racist policies that lead to racial inequity and are substantiated by racist ideas. And so obviously within that, racist policies are defined as any policy that leads to racial inequity. And so for me, racial language in the policy doesn't matter. Intent of the policymaker doesn't matter. Even the consciousness of the policymaker that it's going to lead to inequity doesn't matter. It's all about the fundamental outcome. And and a racist idea is any idea that suggests a racial group is superior or inferior to another racial group in any way. So I want to draw out something. You're actually reversing, I think, what a lot of people think of as a definition of the idea. Oh, yeah. That it would normally be thought of as a racist policy. If the lawmaker said, I'm doing this because I believe Asian people are superior to Hispanic people, even if the law had no effect like that, right? The law had an unintended consequence of, of actually creating racial equality. Um, that would be a racist policy. And what you're saying is you don't care about what is in people's hearts. Yeah. What you care is what, about what the policy does. 
Yeah, and I think generally we have defined racist policies and racist people based on the perpetrator and the intent as opposed to the victim and the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so fundamentally, when I think of defining racism or racist, I think I'm fundamentally making the case we should define it based on the outcome and the victim. And a sub-idea of this is that because we are all embedded in a world that is already quite unequal because we've all absorbed a lot of ideas that mm-hmm. are racist to your point about your your initial speech that racist isn't a like a static category racist and anti-racist and these are things that people shift in and out of depending on what they're doing depending on what they're working for depending mm-hmm. on like what the structures around them will produce precisely and you know as you know from stamp from the beginning one of the reasons why I ended up using the term racist idea Um, as opposed to writing a history of racists with an S, is because I found so many people in American history who would simultaneously express notions of racial hierarchy and notions of racial equality in the same speech, in the same book, in the same chapter of the same book. And so in that type of case, how would I identify them if we're identifying people as this sort of fixed category? Like you're either a racist, you're an anti-racist, and that's what you're going to be. We can't because they're constantly in their speeches, in their writings, in their sayings, based on the policies they support, people are deeply contradictory and complex. And I think by defining racist as a descriptive, using it, understanding it as a descriptive term, and it describes what a person does that moment. In other words, when you said in that in that moment that Black people are lazy, in that moment, you were being a racist. Now, in the next moment, if you said, you know what? I now realize Black people are not lazy. And in that moment, you're being an anti-racist. So let me, to trace the boundaries of this, let me give a sort of strange example. Let's say you are a monk. Mm-hmm. You you are a monk. You live in a monastery. You're a hermit, actually. You're a hermit monk living in a forest. And you like hate, uh, you hate Black people. Mm-hmm. But you're not doing anything about it. Like, you're literally not doing anything at all. You're just sitting there being present in the moment. Are you racist under this definition? Yes. Because I define racist, and to, to distinguish it differently from racism, uh, as someone who is expressing a racist idea or supporting a racist policy with their action or inaction. And, and the reason why inaction, I would argue, is racist is first and foremost— in, 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 in researching the history of racist ideas, fundamentally, the effect of racist ideas, typically on the human mind, is to get people to do nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because what happens if you believe that Black people are more dangerous and violent and criminal-like, and then you look at the inequality of them being mass incarcerated, that's going to seem normal to you. So you're just going to do nothing. And, and doing nothing, as you know, has a political impact, Right. And, and those who benefit from racist policies want people to do nothing in the face of those policies. And so that monk who is simultaneously thinking that hating black people and expressing those racist ideas and then doing nothing in the face of racial inequity is being a racist. So let me then look at this from the other direction. Let's say you're a politician and you are supporting a capital gains tax cut because you believe it'd be good for the economy. Now, we have a huge racial gap in stock ownership in this country. 
So in supporting that capital gains tax cut, are you, under your definition, being a racist because it will exacerbate a racial difference that we see in the country? Yes. That's a that's a that's a far jump for a lot of people. I think so. But I, I think that now that very same politician can decide to support other economic policies that are going to reduce wealth inequity. And clearly when they're doing that, they're being anti-racist. But fundamentally, we just have to come to grips with the fact that they're policymakers and they're, they're, they're everyday people who have the power to support or challenge or institute policies that are either going to reduce inequity or grow inequity. And, and when we're doing something that's going to grow inequity, that's who I would argue is being racist. So let me offer an analogy because it's actually helping me understand this. So we have these terms progressive and regressive, right, which are used often to describe economic policy. And mm-hmm. it would not be abnormal for me to say that um, Chuck Schumer is being progressive in supporting this policy, but regressive in supporting that policy, right? Mm-hmm. These things, they're pretty, I don't want to say they're value neutral, but they're not super highly charged. And it sounds like what you are doing is trying to create racist and anti-racist as similar to that. They are, it's like it's not as highly charged because people shift in and out of it so easily because it can describe so much. You're really just saying, are you increasing difference or are you collapsing difference? Precisely. But do we just – I guess one question I have about that is, mm-hmm. is a problem here then that we need a new word? Because racist carries a charge in this culture that very few other words do. Not that no other words do, but few other words do. And that it just something that often seems to be happening in the racial conversation is there is a war between sort of new definitions of it that are much more expansive and trying to describe something societal and that's more like a description of an ecosystem or things that people face as opposed to things that are in people's hearts. Um, But it keeps running into the feeling people have that the word is – if not an insult, almost worse than that, a deep condemnation. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you, do we just need a new word? Should we have something else to say? So I, I would argue that we should not necessarily create a, a new word and we should understand where that political charge comes from. Uh, where that idea that when you call someone a racist, you're attacking them. You're saying who they are fundamentally as a person. You're, you're saying that they're a bad person. Uh, that idea, particularly in our context, is is one of the ideas that white nationalists have been pushing, particularly over the last 15 years. They've been trying to essentially make this case, particularly to white people, uh, that when someone calls you racist, they're attacking you. To give an example, I, as I mentioned in How to Be an Anti-Racist, Richard Spencer once said, racist isn't a descriptive term, it's a pejorative term. It's the equivalent of saying, I don't like you. This is what he was saying to white people. Because what happens is when we reframe racist from a descriptive term to a term of derision and attack on who a person is and what is in their heart and what's in their bones, and what's going to happen is people are then going to deny their racism. No matter what they say, no matter what they do, they're just going to deny that they're being racist. And it is that denial that not only is the heartbeat of racism itself, but it is what allows white nationalists to be able to recruit white people with racist ideas because they know they're going to deny their recruitment is based on racist ideas. And then they're going to say to those white people that, and this is their primary recruiting pitch, there's nothing wrong with you And there's everything wrong with those people who are calling you racist. 
So there is definitely a lot of that. But I know the left reasonably well, or the left yeah. side of that conversation. I don't mean here necessarily the like the socialist left. And when you get called a racist on the left, they're not kidding around. They're not saying like in this moment you are descriptively doing something. I mean, they do use it as a condemnatory term. It is in American life a condemnatory term. Mm -hmm. If somebody is called a racist, right? Not just somebody, not just you're supporting a racist idea, but you are a racist. Yeah. It's a it's not just Richard Spencer who thinks that 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 is saying something profound about you. Now, I'm not arguing that um the way Richard Spencer tries to draw that line and frankly the way a lot of politicians draw that line. I remember Lindsey Graham sitting up um I forget who I think it was at uh Jeff Sessions hearing and just like <laughs> having this colloquy about how mm -hmm. the worst thing that can happen to like white southerners is being called a racist because of you know like all that racist stuff that happened in Jeff Sessions past. Um but I think there has to also be some recognition that, that people are picking up on something real when they say that this is a this is a dangerous thing to be called. That if you are called it and people disagree on what is meant when you are called it, they disagree that it is like a value neutral term describing support for ideas of a widened racial difference, as opposed to the term people mean when they say you hate people of another race. Mm -hmm. That that there's a that there's a a, a danger there and a, a condemnation involved. I mean, it just feels like we're really in a place where we. Like the, the the competing definitions are so far apart yeah. that it's hard to have clarity in the conversation. I, I agree. And and I, I wouldn't say that a person is not being condemned when they're being called racist. What I'm saying is that it's not saying that you are fundamentally and essentially a racist and you will always be a racist and you are fundamentally an evil, bad person. And like all of those types of ideas. And I do agree that as much as the left and the right and the center debates on what racist, what a racist is, they agree on this fundamental idea that a racist is a bad as a horrible person and it is essential to a, who a person is. And that's one of the things that I'm pushing back against with my work. And, and obviously, I think all members of the left, the center, and the right are pushing back because they want to conceive of this word in that way. And it fundamentally is a descriptive term. It describes you in a negative way, right? But it doesn't say you're fundamentally that. And I think people on the left who are serious about eliminating racism in this country have to recognize that this is a word and we should use it to describe people, obviously in a negative way, but we shouldn't go any further than that. So your work reminds me in this way a lot of Kate Mann's work on misogyny. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a philosopher at Cornell. She argues that misogyny should not be understood as a hatred of women lurking in the hearts of men, but as an ecosystem, a social environment that women face. Things are misogyny is a like an enforcement mechanism. It is a world that you work your way through. Um, and it is a it doesn't care what people feel. Mm -hmm. um, she makes a point that uh, in in a, in a misogynistic world, that the same men who are very misogynistic might treat women and love women deeply, so long as they're conforming to their expectations and serving them well. That you don't have to hate anybody. What you have to be creating is a like an unfair ecosystem in which women's behavior is policed. And it sounds to me like you're trying to do something similar here to say that racism is an is an environment that people experience, and that the question is not what you feel, but whether or not you're contributing to that environment. Precisely. And, you know, obviously no one was, no one was born with racist ideas. No one was born to see biological uh, or even behavioral racial difference. 
No one is born to believe these things. And so obviously people are trained, nurtured, bred to be racist. And obviously I'm calling for people to acknowledge that and seek to essentially retrain themselves to be anti-racist. And without question, whenever someone says, oh, um, I don't know what's in his heart when asked whether a person is racist, I cringe. Whenever someone says, oh, you know, he doesn't have a racist bone in his body, I cringe. Because these concepts don't fully correlate with how we should be understanding the term racist. What I should also add is that, as I mentioned in in How to Be an Anti-Racist, most Americans are simultaneously the victims and victimizers of racism. And and, and that's another way in which we should—that's one of the reasons why, on some level, I'm empathetic— to even people who I would identify as racist. In other words, they have been victimized by racist ideas to believe that the reason why they're struggling economically is because of other people who don't look like them, as opposed to the very people who they are politically supporting. And that type of scenario has long existed in this country in which people have been manipulated into supporting policies, racist policies, that benefit them more than other people, but would not benefit them with other types of more egalitarian policies. And, and and so I think that we have to sort of understand those complexities. Yeah. And there's a fascinating book for people who want to read more on this called Dying of Whiteness. Yeah. It's very much on, on this point. Um, let me ask you one more question about this definitional uh, issue, and then I want to go to the question of anti-racism. Mm-hmm. But we talked about Richard Spencer a moment ago. Richard Spencer is a racist in like the way people traditionally mean it. Mm-hmm. Like he is somebody who operates with a like a like he's he's committed in an explicit way to widening racial difference, right? To to keeping other like it is bad. <laughs> um and it seems to me that when that you almost still then need a word to separate what you mean when you are talking about the politician who is supporting a capital gains tax cut because they've been convinced it would be good for the economy. And the person who is operating out of an animus for people of other races or mm-hmm. a desire to keep their race separate and superior to to in a hierarchy from mm-hmm. people of other races, right? You can even get the question of hate aside. It might just be a racial hierarchy thing. Do you like what do you how do you distinguish those two ideas in this um, schema? Yeah, so you know, as you, with my last book stamp from the beginning, I really, characterize two kinds of racist um, or even two kinds of racist ideas, the segregationist ideas or segregationist and assimilationist. And, and, and historically, segregationists have been the people who have supported the enslaving, the slave trading, the Jim Crowing, the segregating, the mass incarcerating, the mass deporting, the lynching and the killing. And, you know, obviously, you know, that's along the lines of Richard Spencer. And then you've had other people who have rejected segregationists, have rejected their segregation, their enslavement uh, policies, their mass incarceration, but then simultaneously felt that there was still something wrong with Black people. While segregationists thought that Black people were animals and they hated those ferocious animals and they just wanted to be as far away from them as possible, assimilationists imagined Black people as these little children 
who they needed to bring closer, who they needed to raise because they were culturally and behaviorally inferior. And so that's the way I sort of understand these distinctions between the more traditional racist in the form of a Richard Spencer and, and those who reject a Richard Spencer, but still see certain racial groups as as, as inferior. And when you say, and, and just to draw that out a bit more, so when you say still see certain racial groups as inferior, as I understand what you're saying, it's in part still want to explain racial difference through like the racial difference we see in the world around us through some kind of essentialist racial difference, the difference of culture, biology, or, or otherwise. Precisely. And, and so while... So in terms of reforms, in terms of policies, while the segregationists would would support mass deporting Latinx people right now, the assimilationists would support, oh, no, we can have them come in, but they need to stop speaking Spanish. They need to learn our culture. They need to learn our way of life. Um, And they essentially need to be assimilated before we accept them as truly American. And, And so it's a different conception um, and a different set of policies based on a different set of racist ideas. It, it, would you call it a racist idea to say that we're going to have an immigration bill where in order to be able to apply for citizenship, you need to pass certain levels of assimilation, learn English or do a citizenship test or something else? So it depends. Like, so learning English, it would, I would, we'd have to really sort of figure out the brass tacks of that. In other words, does learning English require you to never speak Spanish publicly? Like, so, because some say one of the things that people who push for uh, Spanish speakers to learn English is because they don't ever want to hear them speak Spanish, right? Or is just learning English, learning a language so that you can speak to English speakers in this country. And I think if it's the latter, I think I, would, I, I don't necessarily think that that would be racist. Support for this show comes from Mercury. Financial operations are needlessly complex. With Mercury, you can simplify them with banking and software that power your critical financial workflows all within the one thing every business needs, a bank account. And with new bill pay and accounting integrations, you can pay bills faster, stay in control of company spend, and speed up reconciliation. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Mercury, the art of simplified finances. So... Anti-racist. You you spend some time in the book distinguishing the ideas of like not a racist from being an anti-racist. Can you talk about that distinction? Sure. So in in my my sort of research on the history of racists, people who have said that there's certain people who are superior or inferior or who've even sported policies that led to racial inequity, typically when these people were charged with being racist— Uh, or terms that we used before the term racist emerged in popular vocabulary in the 1940s, their typical response was, no, no, I'm not racist. Um, My ideas are based on science, are based on God's law, are based on nature, are based on logic. My policies are not leading to that inequity. What's leading to that inequity is the inferiorities of those people, and that's based on science, based on God's law, based on nature. I am not racist. And and so eugenicists, when uh, the, really the first group of anthropologists and others named the term racist or racism and, and identified eugenicists as such, they were like, no, we're not racist. Jim Crow segregationists rejected ideas that they were racist. They said that the South is separate but equal. What's the problem? Everything's good down here. And, and white nationalists today, obviously, are rejecting notions that they are racist. You know, Steve King's 
tells the New York Times reporter, what's wrong with the term white supremacist? And then he also says, I'm not racist, right? And so I knew that because the racists themselves have long self-identified as not racist, that should not be the opposite of the term racist, right? Because it's essentially the term that racists have long used themselves. And and so I found that a better term would be the term anti-racist, which I first heard Angela Davis say in the early 1980s. Can I draw something out there that seems interesting to me? Sure. You can tell me if this is wrong. It sounds to me like what you're saying is you actually take people somewhat at their word that when they say, I am not a racist, that for their definition of that, I'm not operating out of hatred in my heart, that like, fair enough, take them at their word, at least can't disprove it. That that's the important thing about premising the idea of racist on difference, that it may be true that a lot of people um, who are operating, say, segregationists, Mm -hmm. maybe they don't hate black people. Maybe they just want difference. They want to make sure they're on the top of the racial hierarchy or they just don't like their children associating. They feel an ickiness, whatever it might be. But but that that's the key there, that you're not just saying that because they have used the term not a racist, we shouldn't use it. But because they have used the term not a racist and may well have believed it, that it meant their val- their, what they were creating as a value for racism was flawed. Like if they if that was not racist and nothing was. I, I would agree in the notion that they believe it. And, and that that's how they've named themselves. And, and so, therefore, if racists have always named themselves not racist, then we should, of course, not be naming the challenge to racism not racist, too. I mean, I think in terms of what they really believe, you know, as you know, in Stand From the Beginning, one of the things I try to not do is try to not make value judgments. And I don't do that in general in my work based on what is in a person's heart or mind or what they believe. I, I think, one of, and, and I should also add, when we're talking about defining racist based on victim and outcome as opposed to perpetrator and intent, when we fundamentally think about it from the standpoint of perpetrator and intent, we literally have to jump into people's minds. And, and it's so difficult for us to do that. Even when people speak, they could be lying, Right. But when people say something like there's a certain there's something wrong with racial groups, we know that's what they just said. And so I think it's a more accurate way to truly describe what a person is doing, uh, you know, if we base it on uh, the victim and the outcome. So then when you move to the idea of Mm anti-racism, talk to me about the the definition of that. Sure. So I define anti-racism as the very opposite of racism. And so if racism is a powerful collection of of racist policies that lead to racial inequity and are substantiated by by racist ideas, then anti-racism is a powerful collection of of anti-racist policies that lead to racial equity and are substantiated by anti-racist ideas. If a racist is someone who is expressing a racist idea or supporting a racist policy with their action or inaction, an anti-racist is someone who's expressing an anti-racist idea or or supporting an anti-racist policy with their action. So it, it is literally, it almost sounds to me, it is literally as simple as, are you, is the work you are doing, the things you are saying, the things you are supporting, widening racial difference or closing it? Precisely. And that puts a lot of weight, actually, on the empirics. It does. Right? Because what you're saying is you could be supporting a policy that you think is like a good Mm anti-racist policy and you're just wrong. Exactly. 
And what what oftentimes have happened, particularly with well-meaning people, well-meaning people who in many ways have been part of the struggle against racism, they would put into place a policy that they thought was going to reduce racial inequity. And then when it did not, instead of looking at the mirror at their own policy, they blame the people. And so it always goes back to blaming the people for why racial inequity is persisting. Um, and, 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 and I think what, what I'd like for us to be able to do is stop blaming the people. Why can't we say, you know what, that policy failed. Let me figure out a new policy, a new way to presumably reduce racial inequity. And, and when we've done that, historically, we've actually succeeded. When we have decided there's nothing wrong with groups of people and everything wrong with our policies, we've been able to continuously change until we got things right. So I think the um, the counter argument you would get here from just a conservative, mm -hmm. um, including a African-American conservative, would be this puts too much weight on policy. Like this is just, it's taking too much agency away from communities, from cultures, from the way people relate to each other, that this is such a top-down way of thinking about how outcomes are created in a complex society, mm -hmm. that it's giving policy in general a weight it can't bear, that we need to be able to talk about culture. We need to be able to talk about what is going on in a community beyond simply the laws and statutes and political norms built around it. Um, what, what are they getting wrong there? So what I would sort of ask is, I, I would ask for a single example in which it was culture, particularly the culture of Black people, that actually led to a racial inequity. And, and so if, if we want to have those discussions, of course, we have to base it on evidence. We have all sorts of evidentiary data proving how policies have led to inequities, but we don't have any data proving that culture. Now, we have a bunch of theories. People believe that the reason why you had higher levels of violent crime and Black neighborhoods was because there was something wrong with Black culture, or as criminologists would say, there's this sort of uh, subculture of violence. But but what we what what those criminologists refused to talk about is that in every Black community there were not similar levels of violent crime. That middle income Black neighborhoods have lower levels of violent crime than poor Black neighborhoods, which was exactly the case in white America, which is exactly the case across the world, and so. But they wanted to believe that it was a cultural problem and made the case about it just by looking at poor black people. So I would just ask for the evidence. I'd be like, give me an example, right? Because typically people would give examples and then I would probably have data that actually disproves it. So one of the, um, let me give a positive example from another world, which is yeah. there is this argument about Jewish people and part of the Ashkenazi Jewish people are the people of the book and that there's been this very bookish culture, which is why Jews in a lot of different cultures have prospered well, right? Have done well as lawyers and doctors and other things. And, and there's this whole thing. It goes back to like Pharisaic Judaism mm -hmm. and we didn't just leave it to the priests and like everybody had to do it. And there's like a whole set of arguments about that. And so like that is an argument about how a culture developed over a long period of time has created different outcomes for a particular ethnic group across a number of different societies. And so, like, how do you evaluate that kind of argument from this perspective? Like, can you, is that a cultural argument? Do you see that as some other kind of argument? Assuming for the sake of the argument that it is true, right? Mm -hmm. Which, like, I recognize these things are complicated and who knows mm -hmm. what data will come in over time. But just assuming it's true, like, what kind of argument is that? Is that a cultural argument? So what I would imagine it is, is 
I would suspect that it's not absolute. In other words, not everyone um, within that culture is bookish, right? Of course. But then if we found that, quote, bookish people excel in these types of societies um, within that culture, what I would also look for is, is bookish people in other cultures also excelling? And then for me, I would say bookish people excel as opposed to this subset of Jews who are bookish excel. And, and so that then talks about like we have behavioral groups just as we have cultural groups. And clearly behavioral groups, somebody who is going to be willing to be in the gym day in and day out, who and you know, you're trying to basically excel in a sport, you're going to be more likely to succeed than, than somebody who's not in the gym because of your behavior. And that cuts across races. That cuts across classes, that cuts across cultures. But it, it does seem to me that we have to be able to talk about cultures, communities, groups, however you cut them, as having kind of distributions of of, of tendencies, right? I mean, oh, it is yeah. true, of course, it, that, that is true. Yeah, 100% what you're saying, that what you're describing there is bookishness and that, you know, you see that kind of replicated across different groups. And Bookish people in knowledge-based societies tend to do uh, tend to do a little bit better yeah. within those uh, economies, but that there, as we're trying to understand differences between ethnic groups, differences between communities, or why mm-hmm. this place is doing a bit better than that place, that to then say, well, when you look at what it is doing right or what seems to be going wrong there, you're just describing individual traits that individual people have. When we're trying to talk about the big populations we're often talking about, that that just makes it like almost impossible, it seems to me, to have a conversation. Well, I would, I mean, I when I sort of emphasize the racial groups being equals, I'm actually stating that there is a range of behavior. Um, and so I think there are lazy black people. I just think there are lazy white people too. And no one has ever empirically proven, um, particularly that there are more lazy black people than lazy white people. Um, and, and, and so I, when I am- emphasize the equality of racial groups, what I'm speaking about is the imperfections of these groups. And, and that's one of the sort of beauties of, of human groups if, is that range. Um, but what happens, though, is when we see negative behavior from historically denigrated groups, whether that's Jews or whether that's black people, uh, whether that's poor people, whether that's women, Typically, people generalize that those individual negativities in ways they don't do for the dominant groups. Mm-hmm. And so then that causes people to think, OK, it something must be happening at a group level because I keep seeing these individual negativities. So I think that's a really important and incisive point. And so I, I want to hold that as true. Um, but I, I want to go back to the, the underlying question I was talking about here, which is it's a lot of weight to put on policy. Yes. And I'm somebody who, like, I devote basically my life to putting weight on policy. It's, I do basically. <laughs> I'm surprised you too. <laughs> I do basically nothing but that. But I think, in part, because I do a lot of studying policy, I do think that cultures, communities, um, the places a policy gets absorbed, how it gets absorbed, really matter. That the idea yeah. that I can just look at a policy and say, "Well, here's how it's going to play out," and so even to taking, I said the the racist, anti-racist dimension of it. Even sometimes things like progressive or regressive or like will this lead to more immigration or less immigration or will this help educational outcomes or hurt them? It also has to do with a lot of trying to understand and the the cultures and communities that things will be implemented in. I mean, for foreign aid or philanthropy, this is a huge, huge issue. And so I think the thing I'm trying to explore here is – 
holding again as like a serious issue, the point you're making that people have a tendency to look at something in a culture and then draw a hugely negative generalization off of that, the nevertheless culture does seem to me to be an independent and powerful force mm -hmm. that can account for difference. That the same policy laid out over two different cultures or countries or communities, it can act in really different ways. And then to call that all the policy's fault, you're just missing a layer of human behavior that's okay. important and rich. So I think another layer of this that I think we didn't sort of talk about is sort of cultural hierarchy. And so people behave like different cultures operate differently. That's why they're, they're called cultures. And oftentimes, if you have a policy and that policy leads to different sort of behaviors in different cultures, typically the policymaker has standardized the way in which people should act culturally. And then they essentially make the case that, uh, that the other culture is inferior. And, and so simultaneously, I think it's critical for us to figure out ways to not standardize singular cultures. Because even something like, for instance, right now, one of the things that's happening in a sort of contrast, I should say a conflict between, uh, for the lack of a sort of better example, Western and Muslim women, is Western women are going into majority Muslim states and saying to women, you're oppressed. And, and, and some of those Muslim women are saying, yes, in certain ways we are, but in other ways that you're telling us we are, we are actually not. And so that's why it becomes extremely critical for us when we institute a policy for it to be culturally relevant and for us to understand its cultural impact. Because I, I completely agree that, you know, culture is a powerful force. I would also add very quickly that I don't have a problem if I sort of see, let's say, a Black preacher uh, speaking to a Black audience and saying that, you know, we need to work harder. You know what? We need to have more industriousness. You know what? We need to do this and that. If he's understanding those people as individuals, in other words, I'm speaking not to the Black community that has these cultural, I should say, behavioral problems, but there are individuals in this community who have that problem. And I'm speaking directly to them. To me, that's a completely different sort of saying. But oftentimes what happens, at least with Black people, is people imagine that they're talking to Black people writ large who have these negative traits when, in fact, that's not the case. That Christian woman, Muslim woman example you brought up, I'm actually glad you brought that up because it seems like a really interesting thorny example here for, for the theory. So your point about not taking just one culture as like the vantage point from which all cultures are surveyed seems yeah. super important here because there's a lot of things where you end up saying like, well, those people are doing badly. Well, only by your standards. Exactly. And maybe they're not like war like belching carbons into the atmosphere and destroying the world for everyone else. So maybe they're doing fine. Um, but you have a very uh, expansive in this argument definition of racism. Mm -hmm. um, and you also make the point, using yourself as the example, that you can grow up in a culture, in a country that acculturates you to believing racist difference is very normal. Mm -hmm. And so in that world, um, and I'm not going to use Muslim and Christian years as the example, but just Im imagine any example you want. In that world, you can have a lot of cultures where people have been acculturated to believe they are lesser than. Oh, without acculturated question. Acculturated to believe yeah. that their oppression is merited. Mm -hmm. And then to say that, 
well, we can't look at that and say anything about it because it's not culturally, um, uh, it's not culturally comprehending the world they're living. Like, how do you decide when what's happening is a kind of foreign culture imperialism mm -hmm. versus um, like what's actually happening inside the culture is like an embedded kind of oppression? So, does that make sense? Uh, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, to me, the only thing wrong with black people is that we think something is wrong with Black people. And I write about in the text, in How to Be an Anti-Racist, how in high school in particular, I, I thought that I was a fool. And part of the reason why I thought I was a fool was because I was Black. And part of the reason Black people thought we were fools is because we were constantly told we were fools. And it affected my academic performance in high school. And, and so obviously you had these racist ideas that I internalized and then it led to my behavior. But the question though is, does everybody respond similarly to the internalization of racist ideas? In other words, some black people sort of hear these ideas about black people being fools and internalize them and it affects them negatively while others it actually affects them positively. It's just like, you know, how people respond to trauma. Some people actually come out of that trauma with sort of negative behavioral traits. And then some people, in a sense, become more sturdy and resilient. And so it is the case that growing up in a racist culture and you're, you're, you're a person who's subjected to that, it leads to negative traits. But, but I've also found it could lead to positive ones, too. But so let me use this as an example. And man, all this territory is, is dangerous. <laughs> But one of the things that Stan from the beginning talks through is this idea that uh, cultures justify the things that are happening within them through ideology, mm -hmm. right? That there is a practice, there's an outcome, there's a disparity, and it gets justified by ideology. Sometimes that ideology is religious, right? It's the, the, the mark of ham, right? Mm -hmm. Or I'm sorry, but this is a hierarchy that is created by our gods, and it's a caste system that reflects that hierarchy going all the way up and all the way down. And, you know, sometimes it's economic and sometimes it's in terms of, you know, are people hardworking? But I think something that 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 some of your examples here bring up is how would you then, like, if you look at something like female genital mutilation mm -hmm. and people in that culture say, no, 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 like we, like this might happen to me when I'm born before I can give consent, but it's fine. Like, this is like how we do it. It's a good thing. Um, and then people from outside say, like, that's not, that's not okay. Like that is, it's part of an oppressive misogynistic culture that is mm -hmm. robbing women later of their own sexual function. And I think there's like something very tough here in this question of when you have the standing or feel you have the perspective to say something's actually wrong, like on a universalistic set of human values versus it's like, you have to kind of listen to where people are coming from. And particularly within this idea that you have, which is, if cultures are this good at justifying themselves and it's very hard to trust the ideas coming out of them, people may not have the standing to say clearly like what is even happening to them because at some level we all are raised in places and we want to believe that the place we're raised loves us. And if something is being done unto us, mm -hmm. well, I mean, it doesn't mean that everything's bad, right? Maybe maybe we deserve it. So, I mean, I think that's a great example. And, and what oftentimes happens is when we are sitting in our own culture, and we're lecturing to others about what's wrong with their cultures, we're not accepting what's wrong with our own cultures. And so I, I don't know of an, a single culture on earth in which someone from another cult, culture can see problems with that culture. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's critical for us 
to not standardize our cultures and to not essentially critique others because we should be spending time critiquing our, our own because we know there's something wrong. So I mentioned in the text, you know, obviously I, I critique these notions that I think are prevalent within African America that there's something wrong with Black people. Like this is something that I feel, you know, I can speak to in ways that no white American can because I'm inside this culture and I've been raised in it and I've been raised to think of this ideology. At the same time, I think it's off, I think it's critical for only black people to have those types of discussions. And I don't think it is pertinent for somebody outside of that culture to tell us. So, for instance, a white person to say, you see, that's what's wrong with y'all black people. Y'all think something's wrong with black people when so many white people think something's wrong with black people. And so, if anything, that anti-racist white person should be turning around and essentially persuading away or educating the way the racist ideas of white people. How does that work when you're all part of the same polity, right? Because when you're laddering then up to policy and you're saying that the way to be an anti-racist is to have policy that is relentlessly um, focused on closing racial difference, and that's going to mean a kind of integration of, you know, finances or structures or institutions or it's mm -hmm. all where the highway is built and how the zoning works. It It's sort of one thing to be have a culture on its own and say, hey, like outsiders not welcome. But it's another thing to be in an integrated culture mm -hmm. where we all have to make decisions together and say that on the one hand, like there's sort of like there should not be integration of critique, but there should be integration of policy, of distribution, of um, efforts to, to reduce inequality. Well, I think that that is what presumably could make America great. Because America would have the capacity, if it essentially allowed that to happen, in which we simultaneously had this sort of cultural integration and respect for cultural difference. And, and I think that in many ways, people have aspired for that, um, particularly at a cultural level, but they haven't aspired for the cultural integration. In other words, each of these cultures truly having a say in that sort of integrated policy to ensure that that policy is sort of speaking to where we are the same and not sort of uh, harming people where they're different. And I think that's very, very difficult to do, but I think that is what the United States, that's, that's what America in many ways can be the American project, can be what America leaves the world. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource isn't water or gold or even oil. It's data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. These transactions are mostly invisible to us and worth billions. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for society? Join host Rafi Krikorian, Chief Technology Officer at Emerson Collective, for Season 2 of Technically Optimistic where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. How do we advocate for ourselves and our privacy so that we can have control over our information and a say in how technology evolves? From surveillance to social media, reproductive rights to criminal justice reform. Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity, encouraging us to remain technically optimistic in the face of big data. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. 
You have a really interesting discussion in the book of questions around integration Mm -hmm. and both kind of the benefits, but also the the dangers of integration. Um, Can you talk a bit about that and about why you're not as convinced as others that the primary goal of policy should be integration, which I think a lot of people look at and say, well, integration is what reduces racial difference. So the point of being an anti-racist is pursuing integration. Yeah. So I think that when we look at the United States from a national sort of demographic perspective in, in which white people are about 65 or so percent of the population, African-Americans are about 13 percent of the population, Latinx people are about 17 percent, Asians, I believe, are about 5 percent, and Native people are about 1 percent. Did I get that, that right? You know, I'm not going to try to, <laughs> to fact check this in real time. Sounds about right to me. but So if we literally we're able to integrate a community to reflect national demographics, then that would mean that white people would be in the majority. If we were to literally integrate all communities in this country, that in which those communities and institutions reflected national demographics, that means in every institution, in every neighborhood, white people would be in the majority. And so From the standpoint of Black people who now have institutions and neighborhoods, from the standpoint of Latinx people and Asian people and Native people who now have institutions and neighborhoods where they could actually, where they stand in the majority, where they can build culture, all of that would be lost. And and so for me, I don't necessarily see the elimination of these um, uh, cultural, specifically building institutions. Uh, as an ideal. Um, To me, a a better ideal is ensuring that all of these spaces, whether they're majority white, majority black, or truly integrated based from national demographics, have equal amounts of opportunities and resources, rather than essentially creating a nation where white people are always in the majority. But so when you say, when you look at the education system, do you see school integration from where we are moving in that direction as a goal, or do you see that as a danger? So I think school integration is deeply complex. I think first and foremost, the Brown v. Board of Education decision, and, and you know, I talk about this in, in the book, most people who haven't read the decision, and I didn't really read it until I started doing research you know, for my work on the history of racism, assume that the court struck down segregated schools as unconstitutional because they believed those schools were unequal. That's actually not why they struck it down. They, they struck down segregated schools as unconstitutional because Chief Warren stated that basically black schools were retarding black children. Not black schools were retarding black children and white schools were retarding white children, but black schools, black institutions are inherently inferior to white institutions. And so that then justified essentially a one-way busing system in which black kids were bused to superior white schools. And of course, as you know, that that sort of busing movement had ended by the 1980s and, and, and segregation reemerged. I would be open to two-way busing. I would certainly be open to ensuring that all of these schools would be equally resourced. But this idea that every non-white kid should be bused to what is conceived of as a superior white school that is what I would have a problem with. And so to to just distinguish this, because something we were talking about earlier was segregationist ideas and assimilationist ideas, yeah. I think one thing you could hear in what you're saying is that if it were separate but truly equal, 
like truly equal, equal in opportunity, equal in funding, maybe that would be fine. Is that what you're saying? Well, if we understand separate as simultaneously desegregated, in other words, I'm not calling for spaces in which you have black people and white people can't come in there mm-hmm. um, or, or, or white spaces in which black people can't come in there. You know, what segregationists did is they did two things. First, they argue that the other race cannot come in. And then that segregated white space was going to have more resources. What I'm stating is that we should have spaces in which, you know, cultural, ethnic and, and racial groups can be in the mono- majority, but other types of people should be allowed in those spaces. And then we should make sure that we don't see white spaces as fundamentally superior to Latinx spaces. And we should be seeking to ensure that schools, no matter the racial makeup of those those schools, no matter the class makeup, should be having relatively equal resources. So we've been talking so far about the sort of theoretical level of the book, but the the end of the book is a a pretty interesting set of reflections on how to actually do anti-racist activism. And you have a, a fascinating um, description of a period of time when you were trying to plan more radical forms of activism. And you write in that that at a time when I thought I was the most radical, I was the most conservative. Can you talk a bit about what that meant and sort of your like what you learned um, radicalism could or should mean? Sure. Yeah. So this is based on a story in which I was essentially presenting uh, a, a plan, a protest plan uh, to members of the Black Student Union when I was in in graduate school and when um, I was essentially trying to convince them and get them essentially on board to support this this protest plan, not to give it away, but and when some of my uh, some of the members of the BSU pushed back, instead of essentially engaging with them and seeking to get them on board, I essentially pushed back with radical ideas. Like so to give an example, one, One woman said, you know, well, we could go to jail if we did this. And instead of me sort of sort of seeking to sort of understand and empathize with her feelings and her ideas, instead I struck back, well, we're born in jail. (laughs) That's what America means, prison. Like I was like mimicking Malcolm X. And of course, that caused her to to not support what I was sort of pushing. And, And so Fundamentally, you know, going back to definitions, we were talking about outcome as opposed to intent, right? If my outcome was to essentially mobilize and organize these people to support this protest plan that I thought would be effective, you know, my failure and success should be based on whether they ultimately support it or not. And they ultimately did not support it because I was more focused on saying radical things then getting them to support my cause. Yeah, you have this nice line in there. You say, what if we measure the radicalism of speech by how radically it transforms open-minded people? And not to take anything away from the importance of having actually radical ideas, but it is an interesting it is an interesting concept of how one might measure their uh, effectiveness in the actual pursuit of justice. Without question, as you know now, I mean, we tend to assess or describe or define radical ideas based on the idea itself, mm-hmm. not its impact, right? And, and what I'm stating is that with everything, like particularly as it relates to race and racism, we should be focused on impact. So if this idea radically transforms a person to recognize the ways in which they've been racist, the ways in which they can strive to be anti-racist, then that idea to me is radical. But 
One thing that that actually makes me think, and I guess this goes back to something we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of evidence that when people feel they're being called a racist, they they pull back, yeah. right? They become more racially resentful. Yeah. They become less open to persuasion. Wouldn't that measure suggest that um, the word racist itself is something that we should not be looking to expand more broadly, but looking to find alternatives to? Well, it, it could, but fundamentally, I think we have to talk to people and seek to understand why that person is pushing back. And they're pushing back based on a set of ideas. And so when, for instance, if we say, like, well, let me say this. Typically, when I encourage people to have conversations with that racist uncle, I don't I don't suggest that they lead with, uncle, you're racist, <laughs> right? Because obviously, based on this data, he's just going to be like, okay, and I'm going to eat chicken and leave you alone, right? Instead, to start that conversation with the uncle, we should ask the uncle, well, what is a racist? Let's have a conversation about what the term racist is. Let's define that term. Because typically what happens is people define racist differently than you, and they attach these all of these negative qualities to the term. So before you can even call them a racist, you have to get them to understand what that even means. And oftentimes people don't. And, and so I think one of the things I'm trying to do with my work, obviously, is is, is to bring these common, clear definitions of the term racist and anti-racist uh, to as many people as possible so we can have these conversations. Yeah, and it, it seems to me that's a, an important part of putting yourself in there, right? That I think that the book would make a lot less sense to people if you were not a character in it, because it seems that if, if any, but to a reader, right, if anybody should be uh, free of any accusation of racist, it is the head of the um, anti-racist studies program at American University. Mm -hmm. uh, and like the fact that you put yourself in the firing line there seems important. It 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 strikes me that part of what you are modeling here is a much more personally vulnerable conversation about race rather than a much more accusatory conversation about race. Like you could take your ideas in a much more accusatory way. Mm -hmm. It's like a lot more you're a racist to throw around. But if you take your modeling seriously, it's actually a lot more self-reflection to lead with. Without question. I mean, I was was raised by parents who came out of the Black Power movement. Uh, my parents were very serious about talking to me about racism. I ended up going to an historically Black college. I ended up getting a PhD in African-American studies. I grew up in a Black neighborhood and lived in, in progressive Black spaces all my life. But I still had consumed anti-Black racist ideas. And, and so what, to me, that says to other people is that's how powerful and pervasive and, um, and, and deep-seated these ideas are, that even someone like me, based on my background, could still sort of consume these ideas. And, and that is the reason why I truly do see the people who are consuming these ideas, not the producers, but the consumers of these racist ideas, who are the vast majority of Americans of, of all races, are fundamentally victims. And then some of them, of course, are turning around and victimizing other people with those ideas. But at its core, these people are victims. And I think that's how we have to see these people, because I think when we see them as victims and victimizers, we are much more empathetic. 
One other thing that I, I want to touch on, though, you mentioned um, being in an African-American studies program and actually laced through this book is some pretty interesting reflections on African-American studies. You mentioned that Stanford from the beginning was meant to be a history of African-American studies before it became the book it became. We were talking earlier about the importance of recognizing that cultures have their own vantage point, that they mm -hmm. operate yeah. um, with their values at the top of a hierarchy, and then they look and they assess others. And in the book, you frame African-American studies as actually an effort to understand that and create alternative cultural vantage points, which is not something I had heard before. So I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about like what African-American studies is and, and, and what the purpose of it is that maybe people who are not steeped in it don't know. Sure. So when African-American studies emerged in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and, and it was largely a student idea, a Black student idea, one of the fundamental philosophies that these students put forth is that we don't want Black studies to just study Black people. Black people have been studied by white scholars and other scholars for, for, for a very long time. A lot of head measurements. Precisely. What is going to be distinct about Black studies is Black people are going to be studied from the Black perspective. And, and, and so this Black perspective and studying Black people from the perspective of Black people became a central sort of defining element of Black studies. Now, what is the Black perspective? Of course, became deeply sort of heated within um, Black studies early scholars, and it, and it remains so today. But what was fundamental was this idea uh, that we're going to study it from the Black perspective, and not just culturally, but even historically and, 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 and social scientifically. To give an example about history, it's easy for us to sort of, if we were to do a, if we were to write a history of the American Revolution from the Black perspective, we would essentially be writing, for the most part, particularly in states like Virginia, of Black people who fought for the British, which is a different conception, right, than if we're writing it from the white perspective. And so historically and culturally, people have experienced America and lived in America differently. And I think that's one of the reasons why Black studies spawned women's studies. It helped spawn uh, Latinx studies. It helped spawn Native studies and Asian studies and all these studies that were seeking to really study groups of people from their own cultural and historical standards. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because I, in some ways, I think history is sort of the easy example. People can grok that, oh, yeah, well, I read Howard Zinn. Yes. And, <laughs> you, you, you know, that's just telling a story from the perspective of another character in the story. And I've read Wicked. And, OK, I get that. Um, well, but, I can, yeah, I can, let me give a cultural yeah. example. So in the United States, if it rains on your wedding day, that's a bad thing. That's a sign that that something for many people is going to go wrong with your marriage. And, and so a, a scholar who is assessing and studying that marriage would, of course, assess it from that cultural perspective. But if you go to Tanzania... It's actually a great sign if it rains on your wedding day because it's believed that essentially rain creates growth. And, and the wedding, of course, is going to be the beginning of this growth called love. And so, therefore, a scientist studying that marriage from a Tanzanian perspective would have a different take on it raining than a scientist who's studying it from an American perspective. And the, the other thing I want to draw out in this, because it, it goes back to this idea of cultural vantage points, 
this is going to be a very weird analogy, but I've been doing a lot of work for a series we're going to be doing on the show about climate change. Mm -hmm. And something you run into a lot as you kind of look at that issue is a very large and emergent cultural critique that for so long the extractivist West has felt so great about its growth and its power and its um, the the expanse of like everything that it controls. Mm -hmm. And that from some perspective, it was this dominant winner of the historical era that it has been in. And that from another perspective, potentially the climate perspective, depending on how things play out, it actually was a terrible, sick, toxic culture that was not able to stop itself from consuming arguably the most precious resource uh, human beings have, which is a, a climate in which they can comfortably live. And that uh, without saying whether or not I think that is right or wrong, like that's stuff I'm trying to figure out, that we can so absorb the values of the culture we're in that it is impossible to realize that from our culture perspective, a culture that isn't succeeding may actually be succeeding great from its perspective. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't believe that the values on which the success is measured are the same values. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily the, I'm not trying to draw a direct analogy to African-American studies, but it has certainly been a good thing for me to remember that things like GDP growth or some of these other measures that I take so for granted as a way to decide if a culture is being successful are, um, I'm not saying they have no value to them, but you can imagine alternative constructions um, and very and many, many places around the world have had them. But um, <laughs> but if you have a dominant culture, it becomes harder and harder to see that. Without question. And, and I think that is it's critically important. And that's why I talk about that extensively in, in, in How to Be an Anti-Racist, that, that we have to understand all this cultural difference from the perspective of what, you know, what's called cultural relativity, because otherwise we're going to fundamentally create hierarchies. And typically whoever creates the standard is at the top, right, of the hierarchy. And it's simultaneously, as we've talked about earlier, it is, I think, and I may be wrong, but I think it's critical for the people within the culture to critique the culture itself. And typically I suspect there's something wrong with every culture, not because I see it, but it's because I assume and that it's people in the culture that should see that. And actually, it's been happening. I think every culture around the world, you have people within the culture who are challenging those points. And so I think that we should empower those people to do that, uh, as opposed to sort of colonizing and imagining that, you know, our culture is better and, and we need to essentially civilize those other groups of people. I guess it's a good place to come to a close. Let me ask you the question we always used to end with, which is, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Well, I think three books, I mean, so many books. I think How to Be an Anti-Racist was, was a blend of, you know, personal narrative and history and social commentary and empiricism and, and, so I think, and deeply self-critical. And, and so I think, I think the self-critical aspect of the text, I, you know, I was inspired by Malcolm X's autobiography. I mean, and I think that's one of the beauties of that autobiography. He's deeply self-critical um, for most of the text. And in terms of sort of blending the personal narrative with sort of larger societal issues, obviously Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk um, is, is a, you know, is really a standard uh, in that sense. And then finally, sort of really sort of assessing the socio and political moment and using sort of data and logic to sort of um, disprove 
its existence, I would recommend books by Dorothy Roberts, like her her last major book, Fatal Invention, um, and, you know, in particular. And if people want to follow your work, where can they do that? So my Twitter handle is uh, D-R-I-B-R-A-M, Dr. Ibram, um, and uh, my uh, Facebook handle is Ibram X. Kendi, and uh, IG is Ibram uh, XK. Uh, and of course, you know, ibramxkendi.com. And you're also the the Atlantic Ideas section. Yes. I should mention, um, uh, I have a great affection for that section. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, I- Ibram X. Kendi, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Thank you to Ibram X. Kendi. Thank you to all of you for being here. Uh, if you like the show, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or send it to a friend. Both those things actually uh, are, are probably the most effective ways to, to get more people to hear it. And so I'm grateful if you do either. Uh, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. And my email, as always, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Support for this show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account. So ambitious companies have the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com.